Well, let me begin this morning by saying good morning. Now, warnings from mornings to warnings. Warnings are an integral part of the human experience. They are interwoven into our day-to-day lives with such prevalence that in all honesty, we become desensitized to the sheer number of warnings that are around us at any given time. But nonetheless, they are there. Day by day, they attempt to advise and punctuate our lives, causing us to stop and think about what exactly it is that we are doing, and to carefully evaluate how we are doing it. Or at least, that's the idea. Even this morning, you may have found yourself inundated by a whole myriad of warnings. From road signs, to check engine lights, to weather reports, and even nutritional information on the side of cereal boxes. They are there in plain sight, and if we are being completely honest, we ignore them every single day. But these are just a few examples of one kind of warning, a written warning, a sign. Another very common type of warning comes in the form of a physical warning, physically warning one another, a personal warning. Recently, I watched The Proposal, admittedly a bit of a chick flick, but it stars Sandra Bullock and Ryan Reynolds. And whenever Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds' boss, is coming into the office, Ryan Reynolds, her assistant, runs around warning everybody to look busy and stay out of the way because she's quite clearly on the warpath. And then that got me thinking. It took me back to another film, one of my favourite films, a film that I have quoted up here before and will continue to do so, The Muppets Christmas Carol. And in which Ebenezer Scrooge, wonderfully played by Michael Caine, is given a very stark warning about his future when he's visited by his old business partners, the Marley Brothers, all beautifully narrated by the great Gonzo and Rizzo the Rat. Now, some warnings are easier to ignore than others. A check engine light doesn't quite have the same impact as, and please forgive me for this, I'll try my best, we're Marley and Marley. Ooh. If you haven't seen the film, I look crazy, but it's fine. And the nutritional information on the side of a cereal box is less eye-catching than Ryan Reynolds going. But today, today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be looking at a warning that makes all other examples that I've given today of warnings fade in comparison. Even the silly one where I said, Ooh. a warning so significant that all must sit up and listen. A biblical warning. And Luke 16, verse 19 to 31. This warning, brothers and sisters, like all warnings in the scriptures, the living, breathing Word of God 
None of us, not a single one, can afford to ignore or disregard. And so we begin this morning by looking at this passage. But as we begin, we need to go back. We need to look back. We need to look for the context. When is this being said? What is being said? Who is it being said to? And most importantly, who by? I'd like to begin this morning by looking back just a couple of verses to Luke 16, 14 and 15 in which Jesus is once again teaching and speaking to a large crowd. We've returned once again to that ever-fruitful section of the Gospels, the parables. And once again, we see, just as we see time and time again, Jesus is receiving ridicule, not from the ordinary Jewish listeners who are hooked on his every word, but once again from the scribes and Pharisees the so-called holy men of Israel. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, are you the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others? You are the ones, sorry, who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. These were men who lived a double life. For them, the sacred and the secular components of their life were in watertight compartments. In the religious compartment, they had the fact that they were Pharisees with certain beliefs and practices by which, in their understanding, assured them good standing before God. They were very confident that they were the holy men. The earthly compartment, however, was quite separate and in that, they thought they could afford to be lovers of money and earthly finery. In that separation, their attitudes, the way they viewed the world, they thought it had no bearing on the religious status. That, my friends, that was why they mocked and ridiculed Jesus. They mocked and ridiculed the idea that getting into heaven might be in some way connected to, in any way connected to, everyday normal life. How they actually lived. After some introductory remarks, Jesus moves on to tell the men the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Like them, the rich man was a lover of money. It's there in black and white in Luke 16, 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Just like them, he had every opportunity to make something worthwhile of his secular life. Every opportunity to use his great wealth to honour God. But instead, he spent his wealth on himself and spared none of it for the beggar at his gate, for poor Lazarus. Lazarus, on the other hand, suffered greatly and was in great need, as we read in verse 20 and 21. At his gates was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So as we see, 
Not only is poor Lazarus destitute, begging outside the rich man's premises, longing to eat even the scraps that fall from that rich man's table. Not only was he sick and afflicted, covered with awful sores all over his body, but even the dogs came and licked his sores. And yet, the rich man looks on. We are not therefore surprised that as we read in verse 22, as we read on in verse 22, we find that both men have died. And that their destinations, just like their earthly lives, are quite different. As the rich man realizes where he is, he starts a conversation with Abraham. With Abraham, the father of nations. And that conversation across that great divide confirms to us that just like the Pharisees, he too had a religious element to his life. A sacred compartment to his life, very separate from his love for money. Quite simply put, if he knew who Father Abraham was, then it follows that he must have known the Jewish law and the teaching of the prophets. And yet, it was a love for money and earthly things that shaped his life, not a love for God. And so now, now that his short time on earth is over, much to his surprise, he finds himself in torment, as we read in Luke 16, 23 and 24. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. Ladies and gentlemen, there are people that would have you believe that hell is an outdated concept. That hell, quite simply, is not real. Some false prophets and teachers would have you believe that hell belongs relegated to the realm of superstition and old wives' tales. And that the concept, such a concept as hell, could not possibly be of a righteous and loving God. These teachers of a false gospel are uncomfortable with the concept of suffering, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of torment. They are uncomfortable with the true concept of justice for punishment and punishment. The true concept of true justice. Justice that is just. There is no one juster than God. But they think they can judge His actions. Because the concept of punishment doesn't sit right with their earthly minds. But it's all there right in front of you on page 150. In the living, breathing 
word of God. It's there in black and white. Instead of the instead, these wolves among sheep would preach the heretical teachings of annihilation, of nothingness, of an end. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is not the teaching of the Bible. And this is not the teaching of Jesus Christ. Who, as we heard last week, speaks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Our Lord and Savior, who came and died for our sake. So that we might be saved that very fate. After all, think about it logically. If hell's not real, why did he need to come at all? If it's a choice between heaven or nothing, why did God step down from his throne, put on the humility of flesh, and die and rise for us? What would be the point? We read on in Luke 16, verse 25 to 26, but Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So what does that tell us about final judgment? Well, quite simply, that it is final. There are no second chances after death, after judgment. Some in our very own diocese would suggest that once you die, there is still a chance to repent and gain salvation. That there is still a chance after death to repent, and in doing so, to nullify the consequences of sin. Here the Bible disagrees. I read again, Luke 16, 26. Abraham, sorry, that's 29. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us? Final judgment is final. And then what do we see? Well, we see the response of the rich man. In verse 27 and 28. He answers, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. The switch has finally flicked. The penny has finally dropped. He now realizes the tragedy of his fate. This torment 
This agony is going to be his life, his fate for all eternity. There is no going back. It's a terrifying thought. It's a concept that brings dread to our very souls. And just like the rich man, something that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemies, let alone our loved ones and friends. But that, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly why it is so important that we go out and share the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, who died and rose for us and our salvation. Because that good news is the only path to heaven. The only way to avoid the horrors, the tragedy of hell and damnation. It truly is a terrible fate. One we would not wish on anyone. If a soul goes to hell rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ, then that's a tragedy. But if a soul goes to hell having never heard the gospel, having never heard the good, saving news of Jesus Christ, then that, that, my friends, is a travesty. It's something we cannot allow. But alas, we read on in Luke verse, Luke 16, verse 29 and 31. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. We cannot compartmentalize our lives. We must live whole and authentic lives dedicated to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In all things, at all times, in all ways. It's only incidentally that we realize that this parable has less to do, less to do with wealth and poverty, although they do provide a thematic scriptural setting. However, they could equally have been replaced with a politician with earthly power. Or an academic with brains. Or even a preacher with eloquence. Indeed, anyone with any kind of resource or skill, every one of us here today possesses something of that sort. And all of us is given some test, some Lazarus at the door. A test case as to self-indulgence. 
Will we bring God's will into every part of our lives? Or will we compartmentalize, shutting God out when His will goes against our own? Will we think about this life or the next? About now or eternity? Our future depends on what we do today. Here in the here and now. Will we accept Jesus Christ into every part of our lives? And submit to his will for our lives? Or will we live in short-sighted, selfish ignorance? Lying to ourselves and ultimately meeting the same awful fate as the rich man. And so, ladies and gentlemen, as we go, as we continue in this season of Lent, go joyfully in the knowledge that heaven is real. Salvation is real. Jesus came and died for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God the Father and spend eternity in His kingdom, in His presence. Through Him we are able to stand before the Father knowing that we have the beloved Son as our advocate. It's an amazing privilege and a gift that could never be earned, but only given in grace. But never, never forget that if heaven is real, then so is hell. If we believe in salvation, we must then to believe in damnation. And that, that my friends, is why it is absolutely crucial that we submit entirely to God. That we submit to Him in all areas of our life. Trust Him in all areas to be our truth, our way, and our life. That we recognize the ultimate authority of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And take out His good news. His saving gospel. His saving message to wherever and whoever needs to hear it. I will leave you this morning with this. I will repeat If a soul goes to hell, rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ, then that is a tragedy. There's no doubt about it. But if a soul goes to hell, never having heard the gospel, never having heard the saving, loving, awesome power of Jesus Christ, then that, that is a travesty. Thank you.